You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. And Gavin? Yeah. <laughs> try two at the introduction worked a little bit better, I think, than the first try. So what do you got for us? I've got nothing. Look at this. Nothing? Nope, wow, this nope. is crazy. Nope. Okay, so, all right, that wraps up this episode. Thanks, yeah. everybody, for tuning in. So I'm working on notes, and I can tell people that coming up, um, we've got stories on dry cleaners. <laughs> <laughs> dry cleaners? Yeah, I know, I know. And mortgage fraud. So we got that coming up. I didn't feel quite good enough about either one of those to to do it this time so one of those would be next um so instead i thought this was a good time in our timeline to talk about the anthony Burnett kidnapping and murder and we may have brought i feel like we brought this up a long time ago maybe that was a patreon episode i don't know either way even if we did in the past i thought this is a good time because it's where we are in the timeline kind of danced around some of this I'm going to tell the story this time. Okay, so I feel like we may... Is this like one of your favorite mafia stories? I don't know if it's one of my favorite mafia stories, but I I wrote an entire book on it. Which book? This is Shallow Grave. Okay, okay, yeah. So then I don't think we did cover this at all. Yeah, I I feel like maybe we did a Patreon where like we explained what was in the book or something. I don't remember. But either way, if we did it, this was probably years ago at this mm. point. We've been doing this so long, <laughs> I can't remember. I'm going to tell the story. And even though like it took me an entire book to, to tell no the story, story, I'm going to try to do it in a half hour or less. And without any notes. And without any notes. So here's what happens. Uh, it's Thanksgiving, 1962. There's a man named Tony Birnett, and someone's probably going to nail me, as always, on the pronunciation. <laughs> I say Birnett. I I had somebody say that it was Burnett, and I don't know how you get Burnett out of that. Maybe it is. Okay. Either way, he runs this jukebox distributorship route, whatever. Like he's he's owns several jukeboxes, several many many jukeboxes in Kenosha. Okay. And he's got, you know, a small family-run business, him and a couple other guys. And anyway, so it's Thanksgiving 1962. They're hanging out in the office. And showing up at their door is Steve DeSelvo, who's Frank Balistrieri's right-hand man. Mm-hmm. There's Joseph Guerrera, who is one of the guys brought over from Kansas City, who mentioned in the... Balistrieri, Balistrieri genealogy episode. episode yeah. So he's there. Um, and there's Weezer Cavelli, who I'm not sure if we've really talked about much, but he's basically like the Balistrieri gambling boss in Kenosha. Okay. We've talked about John Rizzo, who's the gambling boss in Racine. Weezer Cavelli is that version of that in Kenosha. Kenosha. They come to this place and they're like, hey, uh, We'd really like to join your business. We'd like to be investors in your business. Exactly what the phrasing is, I don't know. But the implication is that basically they want to take over the business. And the guy, of course, says no. The guy says no. Yep. And they leave. And in there, in the office at the time, uh, is a man named Stanley Miller. And Stanley Miller has a very long history of hanging out at gambling dens. So he kind of knows what's up. 
And he says, yeah, this is not going to go well for you. (laughs) A little time passes, and Thanksgiving passes, Christmas passes, New Year's passes. Tony's out, picks up his evening paper at the local station in town where the buses and trains and everything go through. And while he's picking up his paper, some guys hit him over the head and drag him into a car. There are several witnesses, because there's many people here getting their paper and coffee and getting a bus and everything else. Mm -hmm. Um, But despite several witnesses, there weren't any really good descriptions of the guys. I mean, I don't know how they did this if if they were just that that skilled at grabbing someone, or if this is one of those situations where people did see something and they just don't want to but say yeah, it. Yeah, they, they know better than to say yeah. anything about it. I'm not sure what the truth of the matter is. Whatever the case is, these guys get him and nobody sees a thing. So they drive off. A day passes, a couple days pass. Nobody knows where he is. So this goes down as a kidnapping. They know that he was dragged into a car. They don't know where he went after that. So at this point, the FBI gets involved because kidnapping is a federal crime. Mm -hmm. So they come in and they start investigating it. And immediately, I mean, they're looking into this as mafia related. Like, they don't even, like, consider really any other options. They're like, okay, we know what this is. The guys involved in jukeboxes, that's a red flag. Yeah. You know, they talk to the other guys in his office and they're like, okay, it's probably related to these guys who visit, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, and whether it was or not, you know, maybe not, probably. So they're investigating that. And this starts putting a lot of pressure on the Kenosha gamblers because the FBI doesn't know what to do. So they're asking, like, anybody they know, and they're kind of watching everybody they know, and they're like, someone's going to slip up. Someone's Mm going to say something. Someone's going to do something where we can kind of get them to tell us what they know. And this doesn't really work so well, It's, but it does succeed in really getting the gamblers scared and kind of gets gambling to kind of close up for a while mm-hmm. because they know they're being watched. They know all this stuff's going on. And Weezer Cavelli, because he was identified as previously having shown up at the office, at the jukebox office, he's cracked down on hard. And even in the FBI files, the FBI pinpoints him as the guy to put the pressure on mm-hmm. because they're like, Steve DeSilva, not going to crack. Joseph Guerrera, not going to crack. Steve's a tough guy. Joe Guerrera, I mean, was suspected in, like, political assassinations in Kansas City. They're like, (laughs) like, this guy is not going to cooperate with us. But they're like, Weezer Gavelli, like, this guy is is not a killer. This guy is a gambler. He's, you know. He's the clear weak link in this chain. Yeah, we can get him. So they really put the pressure on him. Mm-hmm. They're doing this about three weeks to a month go by, and a tip comes in to check the abandoned Air Force base outside of Kenosha. They go out there, they check it, and sure enough, they find in an abandoned farmhouse on the abandoned Air Force base 
a shallow grave, hence the name of the book, which is like in the basement of this farmhouse, there's like some gravel and a very poorly dug hole. And they could see coming out of the hole like a foot and a hand. Mm-hmm. So they clear it out, and sure enough, it's Tony Biernett. So now the case goes from being a kidnapping to a murder. And this sort of switches the way the investigation is done. Because kidnapping is a federal crime. Murder is not a federal crime. So the FBI kind of backs off. There is some discussion about staying on because there is a federal crime about crimes being committed on, like, federal property. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and technically, this is an old Air Force base. Yeah, so, that so they're trying of... to figure out, like, who owns this? Like, is does the military still own this? And they ultimately decide that they don't. Okay. But for a while, though, they kind of stay on because they're like, this might be a thing. <laughs> but it, at this point, it primarily gets handed over to Kenosha Police, Kenosha County Sheriff. And they step in. And, you know, and again, the FBI kind of still sort of hangs around just in general because it's mafia-related, so they're looking into these guys anyway. They don't actively look into this murder as heavily. The two investigations run side by side. I always say this when I give talks because I find this so fascinating. Um, I have the police file. I have the FBI file. And you can put them side by side. And a lot of the times they're talking to the same people. Sometimes they're not. A lot of times they are. But they don't talk to each other. <laughs> At this point in time, the FBI shared as little as possible with the police and the police shared as little as possible with the FBI. For whatever reason, they didn't like each other. They didn't trust each other. Um, they just didn't share information. So Now, is this a just heavy... Would you say this is normal for this era? This is or, normal for this era. This is not okay. like a Kenosha specific, specific thing. thing. No, okay. this was just how the FBI operated. They didn't share information with local police very well. And then is it, would you say that because the FBI wouldn't share anything, the police are just like, yeah, we're not going to share anything back to, with you then? I'd say that. Okay. My impression from what I've seen is the police are better at sharing with the FBI than the FBI is at sharing, sharing with, with the police. police. And when I've given talks, I've had people tell me, you know, that they were retired law enforcement or their dad or their husband or whoever was retired law enforcement. And they had similar experiences. They're like, we'll back you up on that completely. (laughs) Like the FBI wouldn't give us shit. Wouldn't give us crap. Sorry. Wouldn't (laughs) give us crap. You can keep that in there. So, yeah, so, like, this is not unusual. I don't think it's like that anymore. I think they've gotten better. But that was not unusual. So it's interesting looking at the documents and being like, if you guys had talked to each other, you might have gained more More headway on this because you're you're basically duplicating efforts, wasting a lot of time here. But either way. So this investigation is ongoing. They now at least they have the body back. As we talked about in an earlier episode... In the middle of this investigation, the police chief's wife kills the police chief's mistress. Mm-hmm. So I won't go into that whole thing again because we did, did an episode on that. That doesn't help the Kenosha Police Department because their chief is forced to resign. They have to get a new chief. This is now, you know, there's an internal investigation. They're kind of, they've got other problems right now. You know, not that they don't want to solve this case, but... 
this is not good yeah. for the police department. So that shakes things up. Then the FBI is still putting pressure on Weezer Cavalli. Again, at this point, it's no longer a kidnapping, so that's not the primary concern because they're already cracking down on gamblers anyway. They're still kind of putting the pressure on him. One night, he he leaves the bar. A car with flashing lights shows up. He gets put in the back of that car, driven off. Nobody knows where he goes. Several people see this happen. Mm-hmm. The next day, he comes back. He goes to the police, and he tells them that the FBI forced him into the car, drove him to the shallow grave site, hung him by his belt over the hall, and would repeatedly, like, click their guns at him. Like, not actually shoot him, but, like, make the noise like they could fire. Mm-hmm. Basically, we're like, tell us what you know, confess to this, whatever. Mm-hmm. And he tells the police this, and the police are, you know, they think he's full of crap. Mm-hmm. They know who he is. They know, you know, that he's deeply mob connected and they don't generally believe that the FBI kidnaps and and threatens to shoot people okay they do their they do their due diligence on this you know they go around they ask people several people did see him get put into a car with flashing lights that part held up they went back out to the site and they did find fresh shoe prints there including Weezer Cavelli shoe prints. Mm-hmm. If he was faking it, he at least bothered to go out there and fake it. He didn't just drive out of town, stay in a hotel for the night, and come back. They didn't know what to do with this. They still didn't think it was the FBI. If it was the FBI, they obviously weren't going to admit to it. Mm-hmm. And I, to this day, do not know what happened here because. I also do not think that this is something the FBI would do. However, (laughs) the FBI clearly made it known in their internal documents that he was the weak link that they wanted to target the hardest. This would definitely be targeting the weakest link. And we know now, today, what we didn't know then is that the FBI did some shady stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they did break into people's homes and and do things uh, that were clearly illegal and did some very questionable stuff. I don't know that they did. I, I again, have my doubts that they did. I can't say that they didn't. Like, this this is clearly could go either way, in my opinion. The, the biggest thing that I find suspicious about hearing this is that you said at this point, the FBI, this is kind of not their investigation. Right. For them to do something that dramatic seems very suspicious to me. Mm-hmm. It almost seems more to me like like the Kenosha police would go do this mm-hmm. rather than the than the FBI because the FBI, unless there was like some rogue agent in the FBI that's just obsessed with this case and can't let it go or something <laughs> yeah. like that. But it would seem more like the police would be the ones to do that because they're the ones that actually are getting pressure to solve the case. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. That's really suspicious to me. And I, and I don't think it would have been the police. 
because Kenosha, although it is a sizable town, most of the the gamblers and, and other, you know, mob-related people, like they knew who the police were. So you couldn't really do that and them not know who you were. That's That would be a tricky thing to pull off. The FBI, it's easier to pull off. Like the FBI, for example, when the FBI put hidden microphones inside the Shorecrest Hotel, which is where um, the Bellstery family hung out, a couple of them actually lived there, when they put the microphones in there, it wasn't a Milwaukee officer or Milwaukee agent who did it. They got an outside guy who was like a specialist in wiring up stuff to come in and do it. Mm-hmm. If he had been hanging out the last couple of days, you know, kind of casing the place, nobody would have said, oh, yeah, that's the FBI agent. Like, they knew who a lot of the Milwaukee FBI agents were because they're just like, they're always being followed. So at some point, they kind of know, <laughs> know who the guys are. Yeah. But they'd bring in the outside guys. In this case, like we know in Kenosha, it was primarily one FBI agent, and that's Bill Higgins. If this had happened and it was FBI, it wouldn't have been Bill Higgins doing that way it. It would have done it. It yeah. would have brought in some guys from another city to do it. Again, I don't know. I I tend to think that the FBI wouldn't do it, but I know enough shady things they've done, I can't rule it out. I'm going to throw out another hypothetical that I think it could be. Okay. Is what if the mafia realized that, or or just Steve DeSalvo or whatever, mm-hmm. realized that this guy was their weakest link? Mm-hmm. And what it, what do you think of the idea that they could have done it just to see, just to confirm, like, will he crack? Okay. Under pressure. Sure. Do you think that's a possibility? That is a bust. You know, and I, I'm going to give you some real good credit there because <laughs> I had not considered that. Always, in my mind, it was always either it was the FBI or it was faked. I don't think I've considered the possibility that that the mob goes in and does it to their own guy to test him. I don't think I've ever considered that. But that's actually a really reasonable possibility. But the other thing I would say to this is that if you... I would almost lean towards if you never have an instance of the mafia testing their members like that, mm-hmm. I think that's highly unlikely. Because I feel like if that was a thing the Milwaukee mafia would do, you would have an instance of that in your knowledge where... Maybe. Where they were exposed for doing that. Maybe. You know? Yeah, I don't know. Like, that's... I'm not aware of them having done that, but that actually is not a bad idea. And you you have to look <clears> at it like we, like we say. Yes, the FBI did a lot of shady things in that era, possibly, but yeah. FBI, mafia, which one in your head is more likely to do something like that? To me, it's the mafia. Maybe. I to say it, and I don't know if that's fair or not. You know, that Maybe. might just be p- bad perception. I'm going to put it that it's more likely they did it than the FBI. Maybe. You got to really understand how bad the, mob, <laughs> was the, the, the <laughs> FBI was at this point. I mean, so these are the guys who would like, during like the civil rights movement, they would make up stories about guys in the civil rights movement to get them to turn on each other. And in some cases, it ended up in them getting killed. In 
it's really well known now just how hard they came down on Martin Luther King. Uh, Martin Luther King had his problems. He liked women. Uh, even though he was married and had kids, <laughs> he liked women. And the FBI made a recording of him with another woman in a hotel. They sent it to his wife, the recording, and they sent a letter to Martin Luther King saying that maybe he should consider killing himself. Wow. Yeah. The FBI did some shady stuff. <laughs> All right, so maybe it was the FBI then. Yeah, they did some really questionable things. Yeah, cuz I mean, I mean that's that that just plays into the measure of they're doing they're doing whatever they need to do to get the outcome that they're looking for. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and if that was the, very much the mentality of the FBI at that time is to do whatever you can to close a case or whatever, what we're talking about them possibly having done is very much in the wheelhouse of something they would do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not out of line for some of the stuff that they did. They, the FBI in the sixties was bad. <laughs> I mean, and it was, it was like, it wasn't like they were individual bad agents. This was like a top-down bad thing. And I think an important question that we haven't tackled with this is is that, does this murder ever go get solved? No. Okay. So either he didn't crack. Or, I don't think he or, did. Or the FBI wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't the FBI. Because if he would have cracked and gave him something we would have a different outcome. Well, it, and in that's this case. A, that's assuming that that Weezer Cavelli knew something. That's assuming he knew yeah, something. Yeah, I suppose because he was the only reason why they were after him was cuz he showed up with those two with Steve and whoever right. the other guy was. Right. And we and, don't necessarily know that those were the same guys that did it. Right. Right. They might have Steve and who the other guy might have gone and orchestrated the whole hit yeah. and yeah. And, and I guess because we're never solved, we don't even know if it was the mafia that offed him. We don't See, know that 100%, but, but it, it seems, seems very, very likely. Very, very likely, yeah. It seems very likely, and, and especially because the, the tip that was called in was called in from a mafia informant. They, the mafia knew where the body was. So that's, and later, there's, you always got to sort through what's reliable and what's not when you go through these FBI files, because... You'll get like three different versions of the stories from three different informants. And there's enough overlap where you can kind of figure out where the truth is in there. But like they're all kind of looking at things differently. And yeah. And there's like a story that like this wasn't even supposed to happen. Like they were supposed to scare him and it went wrong. And the hole existed because they had dug it previously because they were going to kill a gambler named William Cole. <laughs> Who they didn't end up killing. This is a this is a very elaborate story. Yeah, like, like I mean, like yeah, yeah, like an informant said they were going to kill William Cole, so they already had the whole dog. Then they were going to scare Tony Birnett, and while doing it, something went wrong. It went too far, so they used the hole they already had. Mm. I don't know if this is true, but this is like the way that the informants explained the story to the FBI. That does make sense to me because I feel like, I mean, I'd like to think that if you're an organized crime and you're you're like 
trying to do business, mm-hmm. you would take the simplest approach to the problem first. Mm-hmm. You know, like like this guy's not working for you. Scare him first before you kill him. Right. And I would say that's generally more how it's done. Uh, you, I'm, I'm sure we've talked about this many times. It's like it's frowned upon to kill a guy who's not a mob guy. Mm-hmm. Um, same same as you do with the, with your Birdo podcast. I mean, gang guys shooting at gang guys is fine. But uh, they they know what's up. But if you shoot somebody else who's not in the gang, then it's not yeah, cool. Well, yeah, because that's when law enforcement gets pissed. Mm-hmm. Same thing here. If, if if a mob guy kills a mob guy, I mean, you know, they'll look into it. It's not top priority. You kill a respected business owner. Oh, now you're in <laughs> trouble. Yeah, now you're in big trouble. So. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, so this this went on. You know, this investigation went on for some time. There were some suspects in the Shell Grave book. I actually do identify who I think is the primary suspect. I will not name them here because you got to buy the book to you get gotta, that. You got to <laughs> you got to buy the book, and also it's like it's really controversial because it's a it's a very wealthy family in Kenosha today. Don't want to get them mad. Although, <laughs> even though I put it in a book, don't want to get them mad at me. Yeah, get, buy, buy the book. But either way, yeah, the case isn't solved. So it's basically, you know, I go through the suspects that were identified by the FBI and the police, and I kind of figure out who definitely did not do it and who could have done it. And there, there is a whole lot more that you haven't discussed, obviously, in this in this oh yeah in this story because obviously it's a what 160 page book as opposed to probably our, more than our, that our yeah. 28 minute conversation here so realize that you haven't gotten the full story in this podcast and that yeah. if this is a story that interests you it's well worth your time to read through that book. yeah i'm giving like you the most simplified version because i don't want to spend 10 episodes going through this case but i can't just not mention it, it because it's going to come up in passing for other stories that we do. It has to be, I can't just ignore it completely because there's a book. I can't be like, oh yeah, the book. So the the next que- obvious question is that, yeah. which I don't think you said this, but okay, so they off this guy because yeah. they want, theoretically want to take control of his company. Yes. Does the mafia get control of his company or does the company go away and then they kind of like suck up the territory, I guess it would be. So that is that plays very heavily into my speculation on the suspect. The company is taken over by another guy, and that guy does have connections to the mob. Um, so it's not taken over directly by like Steve DeSalvo or Frank Bowstreet or whatever, but it's definitely within the realm of possibility that the guy was working on their behalf. He was investigated as working on their behalf. But so I can't give you a 100% yes answer, but it was definitely assumed that the the next owner was more pro mob than the previous owner. But at the same time, and I think we talked about this in a previous episode where we talked about these gaming machines that Yeah. It was if it was taken over by somebody that had a history in the gaming industry, most people that were in the gaming industry had a connection in some way or another to the mob because they were just so into that scene, right? 
Yeah. I think we talked about that when we talked about the gambling guy in Minnesota. Right. Where, where it's hard to find a gambling, not find a gambling connection at this era with people right. working in it and the mob because it was just so common. Right. Right. But don't, but don't be, I think you're confusing two things. You're not wrong, but I think you're confusing two things because the, the Minnesota guy was in jukeboxes and slot machines. This is just jukeboxes. Okay. This is no. There's no gambling here. But I mean, still, the mafia was knee deep in jukeboxes. They were too, right? They were. It was, it's a good laundering system, right? No, it, yeah, no, a hundred percent. But I just, but, but you had mentioned gambling, so I like, I oh, want to yeah, be, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I want to be, I want to be clear. Like this is, this business was not. It was just jukeboxes, right? But my clarification of that is, in this industry, it, it would be, it's not abnormal that somebody with connections to the mob would have taken the business over. Even not at if all. It was not the mob that actually, even, even if 100% we knew for sure that the mob didn't kill this guy, still probably the next owner would have had some mob connections. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's not like a hundred percent, you know, where, where we're sitting right now, Appleton, Green Bay, this area, the jukeboxes were not run by the mob. Mm-hmm. That, that, so it's not like, it's like, Oh, jukebox is mob. It's not automatic. But anytime you're dealing in, in like the bigger cities, Milwaukee, Chicago, and I will I will include Kenosha in that. Because Kenosha to me is very much like an extension of Chicago. Right. Yeah, it's a lot of these guys have deep mob ties just because it's part of how you do business. Right. And that's a and that's a fair point because although the guy who takes over, I'm not even gonna say his name. The guy who takes over like is investigated as having mob connections, which he does. There's a point to be made that, yeah, maybe he has mob connections because you just have to. Like, yeah, you're, yeah. The, you're in the jukebox industry. He, he might, he might just have those connections literally because that's how his business is run. He can't yeah. not have those connections, right? Interesting. So, is that all you got for this one? Or yeah, that's. I mean, that's like I said. I wanted to just kind of. Give that story because we're kind of at that point in the time. Like we've talked about the the police chief's wife before. I mentioned last time, you know, Joe Guerrican from Kansas City. I'm like, so we're kind of dancing Let's around see. this. Let's just get it out there. Let's cool. All right. Well, since Gavin doesn't like to do selfish plugs of his on his of his things, I'm going to say book. I'll say right <laughs> now that 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 book is called Shallow Grave, so it's available everywhere. So if you are interested in hearing more about this story, check that out. You can probably also get it at a library, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, you get it at a library. So, sure. so you can check that out. And we thank everybody for tuning into this episode. Uh, we do have a Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash Milwaukee Mafia or just go to MilwaukeeMafia.com. And Gavin, do you have some contact info? Or- yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> um, uh, wh- one more thing. I will say, like, well, I'm not, as you said, like, I, I don't generally like promoting book sales that's not what i'm all about but i will make the exception on this episode just because shallow grave remains my favorite book i have i have 10 books i have 11th one that should be out later this year but of the 10 it is my favorite it remains my favorite you know, you're not supposed to pick your favorite child, <laughs> but I will say it, it is it is my favorite. It's the one that I'm sure if I go back and reread it, I'll be like, oh man, I really screwed that <laughs> up. But but it's the one where I feel I most 
got everything right that I wanted to get right. So I'm very proud of that one. It was the one book that once you were done at that point in time, you felt like I nailed this. Yes. But but now you've grown so much that you'd probably go back and read it and be like, yeah, I screwed that up. That right, way. right, right, right. Yeah. We've talked about this. Again, this is probably a Patreon thing where we talked about this. I get these things confused. But whatever. We're like, when I reach the end of writing a book, sometimes even before the editing phase, sometimes even before the publisher like starts getting involved, I'm so sick of it. <laughs> like, I'm just like, I got to read this over like, how many times and I got to do what, you know, spending months, if not years of your life on the same thing. Oh gosh. That one, I will tell you, I did not have that feeling where I was like, this book is dead to me. Get out of here. I didn't have it where like a year or two later, I was like, Oh, I wish I could have thrown this in there. No, I'm completely at this point, And this is years now. This is years where I'm still, I'm not mad at that book. <laughs> and you're content with I'm, I'm happy with what it is. I, I, it's, it's, you know, there might be, again, like I said, if I reread it, I'm like, oh, I could have thrown this in there. I could have changed this. That's always going to happen. Generally, I think I I hit exactly what I wanted to hit with that book. So I I will promote this book <laughs> because I, I am very proud of it. Yeah, so Shallow Grave, pick it up. Or if you just have questions, you don't want to buy the book, but you want the answers, you can email me <laughs> at milwaukeemafia at gmail.com and I'll, and I'll answer your questions because that's that's how I am. I, I'm more here to get the information out, not really about the book sales, although, you know, I appreciate that too. That was a smooth transition, Gavin, back into the to the outro of the podcast. Good yeah, job there. Thanks. <laughs> thanks. So, with that, we'll wrap this episode up, and we'll be back next week with a Patreon, and in two weeks with a regular Mafia episode. Again, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next time for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.